Hello and welcome everyone back to another episode of The Publisher Lab. I'm Tyler Bishop and alongside me, as you all know, Miss Shelby Kang. We've had this discussion before. I say Miss, but like I'm not really... I, I'm confused on like the application of Miss and Misses and all those other ones. I, I, you're right. It's Miss. Um, I'm from the Midwest. I feel like that's a part of the country. You need to know those things. <laughs> right. Asian culture is the same way. There's tons of different prefixes that you put in front of names. And depending on someone's age, you change it or who they're married to. So um, it's OK. You're, you're right on this occasion. Yeah. Um, and you can tell we're out of practice that we've been gone for a couple of weeks because it's that's like not probably the most engaging grab right off the bat, <laughs> which our podcast listeners probably are willing to forgive us for because as we get more and more, I'm sure that they've um, learned to live with our, our many failings as podcasters, as we often talk about how to be a good podcaster. So, Right, yeah. Um, the first topic I have on deck today um, is about USA Today, and it's from um, digiday.com. So USA Today is testing bilingual content with a new series. So they're looking to make uh, deeper connections with the Spanish-speaking audience by launching a new series in both English and Spanish. Um, so the project is called Hecho in USA, um, and it'll tell stories about the lives of Spanish-speaking Americans. So the project will aim to publish a baseline of two long-form reported pieces each month, um, and then the topics for these pieces kind of cover different things like how Latinos are the only growing demographic to have students going to college, and then also how the demographic only represents about 1% of elected officials in the U.S., so a lot of different things going on. Um, an editor at USA Today said that it's not going to be a short-term proposition, and they know it's going to take time to develop the series. Uh, last year, the New York Times stopped its own Spanish-language project, um, which they launched in 2016, and the project published original and translated content in Spanish um, every day on its own CMS. And in addition to that, Tribune Publishing shuttered its Chicago-based Spanish-language weekly newspaper. That's a mouthful. <laughs> After 16 years of publication, so, I mean, a couple other publishers are turning away from this, and USA Today is kind of diving right in. Um, but the new series will be created by existing in-house writers, videographers, and editors who are all bilingual. Um, but they also hired a freelance Spanish editor to assist with making sure that all the dialects and everything are consistent across uh, the content. So what are your thoughts on this? Should more publishers kind of try and tune into this mm. audience? Is it important to create new content for this or is translating existing content you know, sufficient, what's going on? So, I mean, um, I think we've all probably, whatever your native language is, we've probably all read bad translations before. Um, I, I can think of just like being in, in foreign countries and like getting like the English, you know, translation of something and being like, I, I know what this is supposed to say, but what it actually says, you know, you find humorous, but in some cases it can be really hard to read. Um, I'm sure you've like probably had instances like that before. Uh, well, I actually, I mean, my both my parents are, are Vietnamese and they speak and read it. And I'm s supposed to speak and read it <laughs> Vietnamese, but I actually know more Spanish than Vietnamese, which is funny. Um, <laughs> it's a but, product of Southern California. Yeah, like. exactly. But yeah, I've definitely like seen translations and been like, oh, it's close. Like, I know <laughs> what you mean, but it's not quite right. And I think that... Uh, 
it, as a publisher, you know, one of the things we talked before on the show is that oftentimes, you know, the fastest opportunity for growth in terms of uh, content growth and whether you're looking at organic search or just uh, trying to find pockets of audiences that are already interested in the content that you produce um, is potentially by translating. Um, that said, if you don't translate well or are translating content that, you know, as, let's say a Spanish-speaking audience or a Vietnamese-speaking audience isn't interested in, um, then it won't really matter what language it's in uh, because they may not have an interest in it. And so you can see USA Today is doing a really good job of, you know, like they have very specific ideas and topics that they're going to target with this audience. And uh, they've been really thoughtful in how they're executing. And I think uh, publishers with fewer resources can still take the same approach where you can say, okay, I think that there's a good opportunity for me to translate a certain portion of my content that I think a Spanish-speaking audience or a German-speaking or French-speaking audience might find appealing for whatever reason. You may, you know, have information um, that is maybe particularly pertinent to people in Quebec uh, where they speak uh, French, and you may say, like, hey, it's definitely worth to translate this content uh, to French, um, but if you look at, you know, your content as a whole and say, I could translate this to French or German and no one in French or German is really going to care about, you know, uh, road snacks in the United States. Um, then you're, you have a better idea of like whether or not that's something that's worth your time or not. But I, I definitely think that multilingual translations is something that a lot of publishers haven't really pursued because it's not their forte. Right. Um, so I do think there's a big opportunity there if you if you do it right and um, and make a business decision rather than um, one that maybe is more comfortable in some cases. Yeah. Do you think it, um, if a publisher is kind of starting out and translating their stuff, do you think it's better to go through a service who does it, an actual person, or are there tools out there for publishers that um, can easily translate and are maybe a bit more trustworthy than say just google yeah. translate i think um so there's two ways to look at it there's uh people that are creating content and then there's people that are translating content um so people that create content i think it's always best to find somebody that it's, it's usually harder to find because you need somebody that's in most cases either bilingual or can at least um uh speak enough of a language where you can communicate with them as a publisher and um get get an idea across what type of content that you want and then have somebody that then writes that content in a way that, you know, readers are going to want. And then you have people that are going to translate content. And I think translating content is a lot easier to find someone, but services can be really difficult, especially in certain uh, niches and things like that where um, not literal translations um, or literal translations aren't going to make a ton of sense. Um, as it relates to implementation, uh, href lang uh, is a really good thing to read up on. A or it's h r e f, um, and then uh, you can put a space, put lang, and if you just Google that, you'll get a lot of really great resources on how to implement uh, for WordPress sites. Uh, WPML is a really great free open source CMS system that um, is really easy to implement and used by translators all over the world. Right. Yeah, I thought it was pretty clever of USA Today to make most of the work done by existing staff and then just hiring an extra person to make sure everything is consistent. So um, I thought that was a cool idea. The next thing I wanted to talk about was engaging topics from 2019. So this one is from What's New in Publishing, and they looked into 16 of their biggest 
biggest clients to see which topics had the most engagement. So they looked at metrics like um, the number of total articles read, the average engagement time, and page depth. So the top spot is pretty predictable. Any guess to what it is? Uh, I'll let you go ahead and um, reveal to our listeners. (laughs) So this is not one that I would guess just because I'm clueless about it, but sports Uh, (laughs) is the number one topic. Um, So they've got an average page depth, and I'm assuming page depth is number of pages per session. Yeah, it is. It is. So page depth, I I think a lot of people may think of that as scroll depth, Mm -hmm. meaning like how like far they'll scroll down a page but page depth means like actually how many pages deep into a site are they getting meaning like are you going four pages five pages deep right so they had an average page depth of 1.9 with 1.79 billion articles read on the topic and soccer as we call it in the u.s (laughs) or uh, football pretty much anywhere anywhere else um, was the number one sport with basketball and tennis also read quite a bit Um, The next one is art and entertainment, which is a bit of a surprise since you typically would expect like economics or politics to kind of be in the top three. Um, But the study showed that 1.17 billion articles were read on art and entertainment articles with an average page depth of 1.71. The article also noted that the influx of engagement may be due to the Notre Dame fires of last year. Uh, So that was actually um, on the top 10 Google uh, searches globally in 2019. Yeah. So that kind of might skew things a bit. I could see that. Mm -hmm. Um, That makes some sense. And then the last one is the biggest surprise to me, and the topic is crime, um, which has got the highest page depth of the three, which is 2.02 pages. And... um, about 1.15 billion articles read. So, yeah, I mean, I guess if you do a lot of articles and, you know, you create some, like, guess who he killed yet next type of, like, you know, page page buttons, I, people just keep People clicking. just keep <laughs> reading. They want to get to the bottom of things. I, I mean, those are, I mean, honestly, like, those three probably wouldn't, I'm not surprised necessarily. I, could, I guess I can kind of, I can think about the story as to why some of those uh, might be the case, but they wouldn't have necessarily been the ones that I was guessing. I'm not surprised about news, though, because I do think that news is one of those things where a lot of people read headlines and um, and maybe don't even click on articles. But when they do, they kind of just like skim it, try to get an idea of what's going on and usually don't go deeper. Sports, sometimes you're looking at stats or you're trying to get in deeper. You're looking at another game. Um, art and entertainment may be the same. I need um, that one's interesting. And then um the third one was crime. Uh, and people people love crime. Like, one of the things that's crazy is the rise of interest and engagement in true crime um, media over the course of the last few years. I I looked at some kind of, um, it was like a media statistic, but you can look at, like, true crime was kind of reserved for this, like, midday television, you know, um, sort of audience that kind of always had, like, this kind of, uh, cult following, but like it wasn't this huge vertical. And now with the rise of things like the serial podcast, um, and uh, you even see more um, content like just on Netflix and stuff about different crimes. I know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, um, making a murderer. There's a billion of like the documentaries on different things, and then uh, there's a new one on Netflix uh, called uh, "Don't Fuck with Cats." And yeah, that, I think that's our the first, first explicit episode. That's our first f bomb we've ever dropped in the podcast. But it is the name of the the Netflix documentary. So very sorry um, if you have children listening. 
I don't know if children would necessarily be interested in it. If, if children are listening to this podcast, like we found, we've accidentally done something wrong. And like, <laughs> all right. So we, the, we need to blame like Apple or somebody for just like getting the algorithm just completely <laughs> wrong. Um, the next topic we have on deck today is headline writing tips to drive traffic and clicks. And this one is from Search Engine Journal. So I gathered a few of the tips from the list and I figured we could do a, a rapid fire thumbs up, thumbs down okay, yeah, thing like it. we used to do. Um, so the first tip is to come up with multiple headlines. Thumbs up or thumbs down? Um, I like the idea of coming up with multiple ones. I think in a lot of cases, uh, most of the time, to write a good headline actually takes a, a little bit of time and effort. Um, testing that is really hard from an SEO standpoint. Um, there's a lot of hacky ways to do it, many of which I've done before. Um, but yeah, I would say definitely write multiple ones and, and maybe try to learn from them, but the testing part's a little iffy. Right. Uh, the next one is to pull a quote from the article and use that as the headline. Yay or nay? Um, in certain instances, yay. Uh, in most instances, nay, meaning I don't think that that's like going to be the next big trend in, in headlines. However, in certain instances, I think it's something that can be applied. Right. This one's a pretty popular one. Um, to leverage a compelling statistic or include a number in your headline. Uh, that's been something that's held true for like over a decade. Um, if you still go online, you'll still see tons of results where it's like the seven best, six ways, uh, five articles to, you know, like all kinds of things like that, or 40% of people. It's just people love numbers. Right. Um, number four is to put a single word in all caps. I'm a little on the fence with this one sometimes. I feel like it can be get a little bit clickbaity almost if it's like yeah, caps in there. I think, um, you know, with a lot of these things, I, I would say it's like the right tool for the right job. You know what I mean? Like, if I wanted to write a serious objective article about uh, uh, the U.S.-Iran conflict right now, um, I'm probably not going to use all caps um, unless I'm just trying to write something salacious, you know. But the um, but in the case of you know like maybe trying to write an article about you know social media trends among tweens, you know, like I may you know write something like the seven social media trends you have to know about tweens, you know? Right. And it's like it almost over the tops it. You wrote it for a certain audience. That audience is going to identify that about it maybe. So, again, yeah, right tool for right job. Thumbs up sometimes, thumbs down most of the time. Yeah, makes sense. Um, the last one is to use a question as your headline. Uh, I think that one's very similar to the the numbers one. Um Again, it's not an every time thing, but it's something that's held true forever. It's like by asking a question, whether it's exactly what somebody is going to search or somebody clicks on it or is looking for that particular article because they they think that that question is going to get answered. Um, yeah, it's held true forever. And it's a good white hat technique, meaning uh, you're not tricking anybody into anything. Right. Unless you are, in which case, <laughs> I mean, that's getting to be a less and less rewarding uh, enterprise yeah. anyways. That's a different podcast. It's a different podcast. <laughs> All right. The last topic we have on deck um, is insights on gaining Instagram followers from BBC and Bloomberg. Um, and this is from What's New in Publishing. So BBC News, um, their Instagram account went from 4.4 million to 10 million followers Whoa. in less than a year and a half. Um, so it's one of the world's largest 
most um, news accounts on Instagram. So one of the keys to its success was consistent and regular posting of content, of course. But they discovered that the time of day which they posted didn't affect um, any growth and engagement or followers. But they did notice that they have a bigger audience on the weekend, despite most of news happening um, during the week. So as you're probably able to guess, more people have time to um, watch more videos, view stories, go click on the link in the bio on the weekends. Um, And Bloomberg, which has 1.5 million followers, developed a weekend video strategy where they run a feature-based post on Saturdays and Sundays. So they developed the Five Big Stories series, which takes 10 of the most popular articles of the week and presents them in um, an Instagram post and an Instagram story. Um, And then another thing that both publications employ is uh, quizzes and polls. So I like this one. BBC News actually posts a quiz in their Instagram story that tests people's knowledge on the news from that week. So it's kind of a cool way to get a pulse on, you know, what people are actually reading or paying attention to. And it's also kind of like in a roundabout way, it's a way to kind of get the news too, where you kind of see these these questions. It gives you an idea of maybe what news happened and maybe even sparks the interest to then go to the BBC to maybe read about it. Right, yeah. I mean, I'm not one to get a lot of news off of Instagram. I, <laughs> honestly, I still don't know how I'm getting news off of Snapchat, but I am. <laughs> um, You're the one. <laughs> I'm the one. They're, but Snapchat's still growing. You can't count it out quite Snapchat yet. Snapchat stock is up quite a bit in January. Yeah. Um, but that's just some things that some of the bigger publications are doing on Instagram nowadays. I, I really like a lot of the, the takeaways there. Um, the weekends thing is really interesting. It's one of the reasons why you see Netflix and a lot of um, video content streaming service publishers drop uh, their most bingeable or like biggest releases during like holiday times because they know people will spend more time in front of a, a screen. So if you're a a publisher with lots of video or entertainment or content that maybe is more like long form that um, people might engage with, like you might want to think about how you promote that or push that to people during, you know, the weekends or times whenever people are going to be, you know, maybe out of their daily routine. Right. What Bloomberg is doing, I thought was really smart is they're not even really creating any new content for the weekend. They're just repackaging the content from the week and just giving it to people um and i think that's really smart because yeah during the week you're really busy but it's nice to kind of get the top stories from um just so you have everything a bit more condensed yeah and you think about the overhead costs of content creation and then um you know if you can find a way to take your existing content repackage it and serve it out to people in different ways uh i mean you just get to kind of like reuse the same money twice almost like a newsletter but on a social platform. Yeah, on a social platform. But I think that you can do that in a lot of different ways, right? Like you could, if your goal is, if you push articles out on social media in any way or newsletters, whatever, you can create, you know, the roundup articles, kind of a like overdone type of thing. But you could reimagine that sort of how they, they have here with quizzes or something like that. Right. Well, that's all I have for this week. That, that's all I've got as well. It's uh, happy 2020, everyone. Thanks for sticking with us. And uh, yeah, we're looking forward to... Um, more publisher lab in, in 2020 feels weird to say, um, uh, feels like you're making up a date. Like, <laughs> oh, we're in 2020. Um, uh, I think we passed the date in the movie. Uh, uh, what is it? The, uh, Harrison Ford, Blade Runner. 
in Blade Runner, the date by which, like, I don't know, like the whole movie kind of is predicated on, we've already passed that. So we're living in the future. Mm. And the future looks really strange for digital publishing right now. Definitely. With all the privacy stuff. And I think the ecosystem being upturned is good for publishers because people want content more than ever. And um, everybody listening to this podcast is probably in the boat of the people that give it to them. Boat's a weird choice, but you guys know what I mean. (laughs) All right. Well, um, thank you all for listening. And hopefully we'll be making more developments with the video and the website. You'll be seeing lots of improvement there. Yeah. Yeah. So if you if you haven't already, leave us a uh, review on iTunes. Those things are great. And then, yeah, if you uh, enjoy YouTube uh, or whatever, like to watch me and Shelby do the podcast or you're like, I wonder what uh, Tyler looks like, um, then you can watch the podcast now and then have all your wildest curiosities fulfilled. <laughs> So we we want to thank you for joining us on another episode of The Publisher Lab.